Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. My book just out is Talking Back, Talking Black, but never mind that. In this week's episode, let's look at something that linguists hear about from everybody else so much that I've been known to randomly say somebody ought to write a book about it, and actually, thank God, somebody has. Somebody is Professor Alexandra Darcy, who is Associate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Victoria. And the topic is, wait for it, like. Yep, you just knew I was going to do a show about prolific, gorgeous, exasperating, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today, like. Just as I just knew someone would write a book like Professor Darcy's, which is entitled Discourse Pragmatic Variation in Context, 800 Years of Like. To be perfectly honest, academic publishers tend to give books titles that I'm not sure are always for the ages. And in my fantasy, this book is actually just called 800 Years of Like. You may or may not want to enter into my fantasies. In any case, this is the kind of thing where one talks about, as the old song did from Bye Bye Birdie, kids with their awful clothes and their rock and roll. And if you are a linguist of any kind and you talk to the public about language and linguistics, there is always somebody. I mean, you can just count on it. It's at the point where whenever I do anything public, I assume that if there are going to be eight or nine questions, one of them will be, there's something that I've been hearing a lot about these days. And it's it's this like. Everybody's putting like in. They sprinkle their sentences with like, and it's not needed. When did that start? And, and what do you think of it? Always. And it's a reasonable question because there was a time when like was not used in English the way it is now, just as there was a time when just about any word or grammatical construction in English wasn't what it is now. But these days we hear things such as somebody saying, why, like it's gaily nigh like to four mile like. But you notice how I'm almost sliding into a bad British accent when I say, why, like it's gaily nigh like to four mile like. And that's because, one, this isn't American. Two, it isn't Californian. And three, it's 1840. Here's another one. Father grew quite uneasy, like for fear of his lordship's taking offense. Again, you can tell that that is not something somebody said in 1987, chewing gum in the back of a car in California. That is, I'll read that again. Father grew quite uneasy, like for fear of his lordship's taking offense. That's 1778. So like goes way back. Alex, if I may, why does everybody think 
that this like business is so new? That is an excellent question, and I think the answer is really complex. But what we do know is that in the last 60 years, its frequency has been steadily increasing. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as we notice it, we assume it's new, even though it's not, right? It's this, we call it the recency illusion, that if you notice something only recently, you assume it's recent. Right. And so it's not new. It just feels like it because it's had a kind of a jump in recent decades. And so many people, when light comes up, if they feel like reflecting on it, they think of two things. One of them is the character from the sitcom, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, Maynard G. Krebs. And he was a beat character. That show, for the record, folks, was magnificent for the first season. I don't recommend seasons two, three, or four. I have sat through the entire run. It was a catastrophe after that first year. But that first wonderful year with Maynard. Ooh, that's like a Western. Now I'll tell you what to watch for, kid. See that stagecoach pulling up? Now if a guy gets off the black hat, he's like bad. He's got a little dog sitting there. If a guy gets off and pets that little dog, he's like good. Ah, see that guy getting off with the black hat? He's like bad. Or people think about valley girls. Now, Alex, you say that the Beats and the Valley Girls are not where this started. And yet we do know that something happened in the 80s or even the 70s. And so, for example, here is a passage of casual spoken American English from about 1970. This is a an anonymous junior college in California, but this is something somebody really said. And there's a dog that doesn't bark in this otherwise very typical passage. So the person said, Carbon isn't going to do much for a tree, really. Really, the only thing it can do is collect moisture, which may be good for it. In other words, in the desert, you have the carbon granules, which would absorb, collect moisture on top of them. Yeah, it doesn't help the tree, but it protects, keeps the moisture in, uh, because then it just soaks up the moisture. That is exactly what the person said. And notice, no likes. That person today would be sprinkling it with likes. And so, Alex, what happened in the 70s and 80s such that today there's been such a jump in the usage of the word? Okay, well, we do know that like was around for a long time. We do know that it was doing a lot of jobs for a really long time. We do know that different groups were appropriating it at different times as part of their identity. So it was definitely a part of beat, jazz, and cool, right? Mm -hmm. So the counterculture movements had this feature. It was overtly associated with them. We know this because there's metalinguistic commentary to that extent. People talk we about it, right? Write about it. talk about it. We can find it in the literature. We can find it in popular literature. There was something very powerful about counterculture. And we do know that there was a huge shift globally that happened that started moving in the 60s and then carried on into the 70s that was driven by this counterculture mm-hmm. and moving against established middle-class norms. I can't say for sure, but I do think that had something to do with it. And then the feature came to be associated with other types of personalities. So we know that it's part of surfer identity hmm. to the extent that People talk about it being a surfer thing, regardless of whether it is or not. And then it came to be associated with Valley Girl, regardless of whether it was or not. And so we know that as soon as 
different linguistic features become associated with different groups, and the message in the packaging of that group is something that is tangible and attractive, Mm -hmm. we start to pick up on those things, and then that's what allows different linguistic forms really to spread and grow. So this started having something to do with various aspects of the counterculture, and not not just the Woodstock part, but surfers, and even before that, the beats, but just a movement against this Ozzy and Harriet pipe-smoking ideal. And this apparently wasn't only in America, this was the English-speaking world. But then it takes on a life of its own. Would you say that the teenager today who is liking all over the place, is it motivated by ideology or is it now at the point where that person is talking that way because that's just what they heard before and patterns just reproduce themselves? I would say definitely the latter. This is a part of English grammar. And I know that people are going to want to have a knee-jerk reaction to my use of the word grammar there, (laughs) but there are definitely rules for this. Mm -hmm. And speakers, younger speakers today do not have rules that are distinct from speakers who are in their 80s, say, Mm -hmm. within the same community. So that tells us right there that there's a very strong line of intergenerational transmission and that these rules operate consistently. It doesn't matter how old you are, what differentiates you in many regards is frequency. All right, let's let's try this because it can be so hard to listen to the way like is used now. And folks, I feel just like Alex. I, th- I have often said I think like is beautiful in its systematicity, but I know that that doesn't sound right beyond certain rarefied enclaves such as the Linguistic Society of America. You listen to this thing and what you hear is bubblegum. You, you don't hear structure. And so I want to get at what This grammar is, and I want to give a really beautiful, real example that is in Alex's book of how like is actually used, not just one or two per sentence, but what rankles people like that mythical caller in that I imitated. Here's a passage that I'm so glad was in the book. Quote, I love Carrie. Like Carrie's like a little like out of it, but she's like the funniest, like she's a space cadet. Anyways, so she's like taking shots. She's like talking away to me and she's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'll come back in like five minutes, unquote. That is perfect. And that is an actual person talking. And there are three types of like in this. And Alex, I want to see if we can make it clear to skeptics listening that there's a difference. And so I'm going to take a little bit of this. I love Carrie. Like Carrie's like a little like out of it but she's like the funniest, like she's a space cadet. What are the two types in there? It's not just like mess. There's system here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the very first like. Mm -hmm. Like Carrie's that first one. That first one. I love Carrie. Like Carrie's like a little out of it. So that first, first one, that one has a really clear job. And the way that you can understand that most clearly is to think about if you wanted to translate what that like meant, you can do it. You can give it concrete words. Mm -hmm. And so you could sub in, for example, for example, Mm. I love Carrie. Like, she's a little bit out of it. So I'm exemplifying why I like her, Mm -hmm. or I'm elaborating on my point. So I like her. Mm. Let me clarify for you why it is that I like her. And so I continue on and elaborate on that first point. So that kind, which you can call a 
discourse marker is one that's roughly translatable by, for example. So in some hypothetical other English, people might be saying, for example, more than we would expect. So that one is, I love Carrie. Like Carrie's, but then it goes on. I love Carrie. Like Carrie's like a little like out of it, but she's like the funniest, like she's a space cadet. What about those other likes that come afterward? So I call those a particle, Mm -hmm. and those aren't as easy to gloss. You can't put another word or phrase to replace them. But what it's doing in those cases, it does things like focus. So I want you to pay attention to this particular bit. It's almost like an emphasis marker. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, it sometimes allows the speaker to mitigate authority. So I'm making this claim. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to make clear that this is my experience of this rather than me saying it's a fact. Mm-hmm. It also does this other thing, which is I know that you use like and I'm using like, and in us both using like, we're building up a relationship together. We need to remember that that use of like is incredibly stylistic mm-hmm. in the sense that we don't use it the same way in a formal context as we do when we're in a very interpersonal context. There are few demonstrations of the richness that you can find in the humble than the fact that that like, which I think is the like that irritates people the most, this particle like, actually has all three of those functions. And yet we don't even think of it when we hear it or produce it. But yeah, that's very interesting. The first one is, for example, the second kind, it's either focus or it is hedging a bit, or it is indicating that there's a certain camaraderie between. And the hedging is interesting because you can think of it as a kind of politeness, I would say. Many people would say, why aren't these people confident? But it also seems to be indicating, I know you might be thinking something else, but I'm venturing this. Am I reading too much into it to think of it that way? No, absolutely not. That's exactly the way that I think of it. So we've got discourse marker like, which let's just call it the for example like. Then we've got the beautiful tripartite, we're all in this together, let's not beat each other up like, and that's the particle like. Then here's the second part of what this person says. Anyways, so she's like taking shots, she's like talking away to me, and she's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'll come back in like five minutes. So she's taking shots, I'm assuming that that's either with jello or alcohol. She's like talking away to me, and then... And she's like, what's wrong with you? What's that third like? And she's like, what's wrong with you? So that third one is the quotative where we use it to introduce constructed dialogue. So we're reproducing speech that happened in the past. That is one which really strikes me as novel. In New York, you listen to speech a lot because we don't drive. And just to listen to the way anybody nowadays says, and I was like... And she was like, well, this happened. And I was like, often not even followed by anything. Just, and I was like, nobody was saying that in 1950, it seems to me. That particular like strikes me as very modern. Is that true? You can trace it to speakers who were born in the late 1940s and the early 1950s, where there was an incoming form of it, almost like an embryonic version, where mm-hmm. you got it with it. So rather than saying, I was like, or she was like, you get it's like. Hmm. 
that was the entry point, and that's what you see with speakers born in the 40s and 50s. Of course, what is challenging about this is finding the materials that date the right. point at which it entered the language. We do have recordings from the late 1970s that mm-hmm. begin to show speakers using it. But that's when it begins. And so the little, the little kid in the beanie eating Velveeta and watching Howdy Doody might have grown up saying it was like, but then that person's child changes it into the I was like, she was like. So it's been an evolution. Oh, it absolutely has evolved. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And you can see what's so beautiful and also astonishing about it. So even if you don't like it, I think we need to respect it. Because when we look at it globally, you see that it's the same generations in every locale who really push it forward. So the first people who really propel it mm-hmm. are speakers born in the 1960s, mm-hmm. the late 1960s. And then the second generation, it is literally generational at this point, because mm-hmm. then it's the early to mid-1970s, those speakers, that's my generation, mm-hmm. who really give it that big, big jump. And then the third push comes with speakers born in the mid to late 1980s. And you see that it doesn't matter if you're in Perth on the west coast of Australia or in Toronto, Canada. It doesn't matter. It's the same generations. And that is really quite astonishing and tells us that it's not random. Alex, I've got to ask you, given how fascinating this is, how do you know these things about the generations? How do we figure these things out? Because most people don't think about these things and most people die. And so what are the tools that you use to analyze the evolution of little like? The two main tools are historical materials, archival recordings, those Mm -hmm. types of things, and then recordings that we take now with speakers of all ages. So what you end up with is a model of how speakers use a particular form right through from those people who were born in the Mm mid-1800s to today. And so then you're able to track the trajectory of different forms of like and different uses within the language. And, of course, the more data points you get, so not only the more speakers you get, but the more global points you get, for example, Mm -hmm. the more robustness that that adds to the analysis that you're able to bring to a particular form. Who recorded these people who were born in the mid-19th century? What sort of sources do we have? Oral histories are the big one, and there are a lot of parallels between oral histories and the type of work that we as sociolinguists might do, which is about sitting down with somebody and having them talk about something that's actually really interesting to them. They maybe think that what you want to hear about is why they moved to Seattle, but what you're really listening for is how they use like. Well, yeah, because it's all embedded in storytelling, (laughs) (laughs) which, which is wonderful. And then there are also amazing collections sitting in archives around the world, such as what they used for the Origins of New Zealand English Project, which were recordings that Radio NZ made in the late 1940s, right after World War II, where they literally drove around the country and interviewed the settler stories of people of first-generation New Zealanders. Mm -hmm. And so you have those types of materials. In Victoria, I've drawn on recordings that were made by the local television station, again, where someone went out in the 1960s and sat down with people and had conversations about them, about the reality of living in a place. Huh. 
and then then you get ordinary people using ordinary speech, which can be so elusive. So this thing evolves. We have this word like, and you can either like as in like something, or you can like as in something is similar. And the word like starts in English actually meaning body, if you want to go way back, and then body becomes similar. And pretty soon you have a word like, which is pronounced leak, and it goes through sound changes, and it's like. How do you get from a person walking around in breeches saying something along the lines of, I think that this new fruit, the orange, tastes like a peach or whatever they would have said, to this way that the modern teenager uses like in a way that that person would have found horrifying. Where does the new like begin? What kind of sentence was it? So the way that this all starts is that there was actually, like was able to work as an adverb for a really, really long time in the history of the English language. And eventually it found its way to the end of a sentence. And I believe that one of those early examples that you read had like right on the end of a sentence, Mm -hmm. which is a very, very well-established function in English. Alex, if I may, that was, why like it's Gaelic, and I like to four mile like that one. Exactly. That's exactly the one that it was. It still does that in some varieties of English. It's very, very rare in North American Englishes, but certainly in Irish English, it's alive and well. Mm -hmm. And that one meant as it were. So it said, whatever it is that I just said, Mm -hmm. I mean something like that, right? So it has that approximative core Mm -hmm. already associated with it. If we think about that one, in running speech. Mm-hmm. So somebody is simply talking. And when we listen to somebody talking, sometimes it can be really hard to disambiguate where one sentence ends and the next one begins. Right? So mm-hmm. if you just have running sentences and you have a like at the end and then the next sentence starts... Oh, that's neat. Okay. It's very easy to get from, as it were, mm-hmm. to let me show you how this all goes together. Partly, I imagine, because you might hear it as the like beginning the next sentence instead of ending the one before. Exactly, exactly. I mean, as it were, is not very far from, let me clarify or let me show you how these things go together. Let right. me elaborate on what I just said so you understand how I mean that it was something like what I just said. And so then it jumps to the beginning of the sentence, and that's where now we have the marker. Hmm. And then the marker, the for example one, becomes the particle. It's interesting, folks. What we're talking about is something linguists can call rebracketing, or this would stretch it, but reanalysis. And so it would be something along the lines of, well, I like it's gaily, and I like to four mile like. But the person didn't stop there. Suppose they said, well, I like it's gaily, and I like to four mile like. I was rolling along, and next thing I knew, Dick Van Dyke came doing an accent even worse than I am, or something like that. A person might listen to that, and then they might think that it's, why, like it's Gailey and I like to four mile. Like I was walking along, and I met Dick Van Dyke. So you end up having the like being processed as coming at the beginning instead of the end, and after a while, it's not processing. That's the way it becomes. That's how language changes. And Alex, I have a surprise for you. I've just looked something up. That like that hangs at the end, that original adverbial like, I associate that with Saul Bellow, believe it or not. And I'm going to read you one from Seize the Day, where Tommy Wilhelm says, that's the right clue and may do me some good, something very big, truth like. 
That's one thing he says. And it's also in Henderson, the Rain King. Bellow had his characters doing that in the mid 20th century. And I read that years ago and thought that sounds like proto-like. And I just kind of filed it away. So that's just something that everybody can think about. But Alex, there's a gender issue with like. Now, everybody says that it's something that girls do. Is that true? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's the great thing about like. It is so layered and so nuanced. That is one of the reasons why I always say that like is so beautiful, because it gives (laughs) us so many insights to language. There's more than one like, and it isn't treated the same way by all groups. And so so the marker, the for example, Mm -hmm. like, Mm-hmm. That is something that we can see is used slightly more by women. I'm saying slightly, although because it's so regular across generations, it is nonetheless statistically significant and therefore meaningful. So that is the one, the for example one, is the one that is used more frequently by women. Mm-hmm. The particle one that let me hedge let me show solidarity, let Mm -hmm. me focus something. The one I like better, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That one is associated slightly more so, but significantly more so, with men. Hmm. Is there a reason why women would be using the for example one more while men would be using the particle more? It must make some sort of sense, or it's just, just, just random in the way that they're whales that have one half of their jaw that's black and one half that's white? I don't think it's random. I Mm -hmm. don't have a fully articulated answer for this, but what we do know about the marker one, the for example one, Mm -hmm. those forms generally, they really are polite. I mean, we can think of the particle one as politeness, Mm -hmm. but the marker ones are about politeness. They're also about conscientiousness Mm. and being a helpful speaker in the sense that they help point the person you're talking to through the conversation. They're like signposts, right, that say, this is where I'm going next, or this is how you're meant to understand what I'm saying connects to what I've just said. I'm putting, I'm literally putting signposts in this conversation to help you navigate this text, which is produced in a very spontaneous way, and we need to navigate through it together. So they're really cooperative features And there has been discussion that women have slightly more cooperative conversational styles than men do. Hmm. Now then with the particle, how come guys are doing that more, might one say? So one of the reasons why men might use the particle more is because it is fundamentally a vernacular feature. That is the one that is part of colloquial language. That is the one that is not embraced. And there is something inherently covert about using features that aren't liked. So we tend to see men saying jumping instead of jumping more than women do. This is in all likelihood a parallel to that type of phenomenon. Men are more likely to let it all hang out, so to speak, in speech than women. And I know, folks, that that sounds like some sort of stereotype, but study after study has shown that in terms of language change, that is very much a tendency. And what's interesting is that in this like, which is not available to conscious thought to anybody who's just speaking, that these sorts of differentiations play themselves out. Like is used a lot 
these days. And so, for example, the Carrie paragraph. I love Carrie. Like Carrie's like a little like out of it, but she's like the funniest, like she's a space cadet. That's not an exaggeration. I would say that a great many women I know, and they are not all just 19 or 20, use like that much. And these are perfectly intelligent and I think very articulate people. But I must say that I have advised the occasional person who wanted to speak in a public way or to convince people that in that situation, they might temporarily put a break on the likes because whether we like it or not, I think like is always going to be associated with a certain hesitation, with a certain approximation, with a certain sloppiness, partly because the original meanings of like are always there as comparison. Would you say that I'm being a school mom about that and that we need to teach the public to just accept that language has changed, which is my view most of the time, but I find like to be a weird case. Like is a weird case. And while I would love to say, let the likes hang out there, let them go wild, I do think that it is important to recognize stylistic norms and pressures. And the fact is, we also have study after study after study that shows that even people who use like judge people negatively on certain types of status markers, right? So when you say when people are going to be public speaking, I advise them to avoid like, that's actually good advice because we do know that if you use it in that type of context, you do get judged negatively because that is the type of context where articulate, fluent speech is prized. Mm-hmm. So... I think, do we need to tell people to stop using it when they're having a casual conversation with their friends? No. Because the fact is, that's what speech is now. So that's not changing. And if I'm allowed to descend into anecdote, (laughs) I love like, I am a regular user (laughs) of like, I am so proud of my son who's nine, who can do things with like that I can't, because (laughs) it is continuing to evolve. He has a really beautiful grammar of, like, fully elaborated. Mm-hmm. However, I once gave a, a guest lecture talking about, like, and a student raised her hand at the end and she said, you keep telling us that you really like like and that you use like, but you never actually used it in this entire lecture mm-hmm. unless it was an example. Mm-hmm. I have to admit she caught me off guard, and I said, that can't possibly be right. I use like all the time. <laughs> And she said, well, no, and I looked around, it was a large class, and all of these heads were nodding, Mm. saying to me, she's right, you never used it. So in a sense, they were basically calling me out, and then I realized, okay, I obviously have lecture style where I don't use like, Mm -hmm. which really underscores that it does have this very, very heavy stylistic component to it that it pays to be aware of when we're outside of a context with our familiars and peers. That's definitely true. That difference between formal and informal use of language and the fact that there will always be certain strictures that anybody has to abide by. And I try to stress it in my public writing because it's easy to not be aware of it. I just got knocked for talking back, talking black in the New York Times book review where the person rather slyly says that I spend the book insisting that black English is okay while writing in my, I forget how he puts it, but you know, articulate something. I think he calls it diction, which is interesting given that I was writing, but we take his point. And that is something that the general public 
always feels. If you love non-standard language, why aren't you writing in it? Why aren't you speaking in it? And the answer is that non-standard language, as wonderful as it is, has its context and is not workable in the formal context, whether we like it or not. It's subtle. But in any case, um, for all of you listening to us out there, this book is an academic linguistics book. But as is true of Professor Darcy's work in general, it's not written in the heedlessly opaque style that academic work can be written in. It isn't Tom Clancy, but this is a book that talks. And also for a handier lesson, on like. Alex has an article I've always loved called Like and Language Ideology, Disentangling Fact from Fiction, which was done in the journal American Speech, which is an academic journal, but they cherish a certain accessibility. That was in 2007. And linguists listening to this, Alex is also all about theoretical syntax too. And so the book will answer a wide range of your questions. The issue of language attitudes is by no means the centerpiece of the book. This book really tells the story on like for the ages. Alexandra Darcy, thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids, who can understand anything they say? You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Noisy, crazy, sloppy, lazy loafers. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Yes, I'd toss in a like joke about here, but it'd be too obvious, so pretend that I did. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter. Thank you so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. What's the matter with kids? Yeah, what's the matter with kids? Nothing's the matter with kids today.